0: And welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. I'm here today
2: with my client, Andrea Dunlop. Andrea Dunlop is an author and consultant based out of Seattle, Washington, with over a decade and a half of experience in book publishing. She began her career as an in-house publicist for Doubleday, Random House. After moving back to Seattle in 2009, she took over publicity manager for Kim Ricketts Books, Book Events, promoting a wide range of cookbook and literary events. Next, she spent five years with an editorial and book production firm as their executive director of social media and marketing, working with with both traditionally and self-published clients and spearheading the company's marketing efforts. Andrea is the author of three novels, including Losing the Light, She Regrets Nothing, and We Came Here to Forget, all from Atria, Simon & Schuster. Her books have been featured in Town & Country, Bustle, in Style, Us Weekly, Vanity Fair, People, and Elsewhere. In addition to her writing and consulting, Andrea is an accomplished speaker and has presented at book and publishing conferences nationwide. She teaches periodic classes at Hugo House, and arts and literacy organization in Seattle. She is a member of the American Professional Association on the Abuse of Children's Munchausen by Proxy Committee and is the co-creator of Munchausen Support, which is dedicated to providing resources for frontline professionals, families, and survivors dealing with MVP. So Andrea is a very longtime client of mine, and I'm close with all of my clients, but Andrea and I share a couple of special bonds which I will let the listener know. One is that we share the same wedding day, August 20th, 2016. Mm -hmm. And we also have a connection. Her book, She Regrets Nothing, came out the week my first son was born. So we always are celebrating milestones together. But thank you for joining me on the podcast, Andrea.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. And yeah, I think We have uh, had some really funny moments where our personal lives have tracked along with our professional lives, because it just seems like we're always doing books and babies together. So (laughs) it's just perfectly
2: in (laughs) sync. Story of our lives, story of our lives. So on the podcast, I tend to be the one that prattles on and on about comps, comp titles on the podcast. So I put together a little game for us for a little fun start. So for your listeners who don't know about your backlist titles, we're going to kind of learn a little bit about your backlist titles, and I am going to comp your books to you. So I'll give you an example. So so for the purpose of preparing you, for example, if your book was Red, Right, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, I would say, which of your books is American Royals Meets the Crown? Or if your book was Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld, I would say, which of your books is Pride and Prejudice meets The Bachelor, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to give uh, you sounds like comps. a hard game. <laughs> no, no, no. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. I didn't, listener, I didn't prepare Andrea at all, just so you know. Okay, so. I'm blind, blind. <laughs> okay, so here's your first comps. Which of your books is Bridesmaids Meets Lost?
3: Broken Bay. Oh, I see. We're doing this for my books. Yeah, I don't have to do this for. I I thought I was going to have to do this for just (laughs) any book, and I was like, Oh my god, I don't know. This sounds like the hardest game ever. Okay, all right. I think I can handle my books. Oh yes. Let's let's see if I remember what I've actually written. You know what?
2: Yes, exactly. Okay. Now there, there's so that's Andrea's novella that came out. Um, her her Bridesmaids Meets Lost one. Okay, here's the next Andrea book. Which of your books is The Talented Mr. Ripley Meets the Vacationers?
3: Ooh, Losing the Light.
2: Yes. Love, love, love. Our first book that brought us together, Andrea's debut novel. Okay. Which of your books is Great Gatsby Meets Downhill Racers Meets
3: the Act? Ooh, that is, um, that is, uh, we came here to forget. Yes. You almost got me with that the Great Gatsby thing. I was like, that's a I think the Great Gatsby is an overarching influence, maybe for me.
2: <laughs> I there's this one scene in the book that I always want to comp Great Gatsby because it has such a Gatsby feel. There's just one big party scene. I won't ruin it for everybody, but the party scene always makes me think of Gatsby. Okay, I think we're our last one. Okay, which of your books is Gossip Girl Meets the Emperor's Children?
3: Well, that's Sheer It's Nothing. And that's the only other book I've read. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So as I
2: said, I'm just the comp queen. I'm always telling everybody on the podcast, comps, comps, comps. So How do you as a writer feel about comping being compared to other people? Or do you feel like it's just exists in like the publishing part of your world or the writerly part of your world? And like, what do comps, comparative titles and and all of that mean to you as a writer?
3: I think they're so important. And I think that actually learning about comp titles is kind of one of the most important industry things that writers who are not working in any other part of the publishing industry besides being authors. I think that's one of the most important things you can learn about just because I think that Comp titles really are a way of telling you what the book is beyond just the back cover copy description, and they really help place it in the market. And I think they're not a perfect system, but they certainly are a lot more specific than something like genre. I think especially for work like mine, genre just is not very helpful. It doesn't really tell you anything. I mean, there's sort of all of these nebulous genre terms for what I write. Some people call it women's fiction. Some people call it upmarket fiction. Those don't really tell you. Upmarket and women read it. Okay, women are like the audience for most books. So it doesn't tell you much about it, right? So we really sort of rely on comp titles to tell a reader what it is. And I think that most readers are looking for what they like. I mean, there's so many books out there. Discovery is always the biggest issue that novelists face. And I think knowing your audience and knowing what other books they're reading, most people who read, read a lot, they're always looking for something that's like their other favorite books. So I think that's a really good thing to know. It's nice to know how you fit into the market and also sort of how you stand out from that market. So I think that that's kind of one of the, it's just a really key thing that I think writers should learn about as much as possible. Thank you. Thank you for giving a pitch for comp titles. And <laughs> well, yeah. And I think it's also important that you're You know, it sort of speaks to the importance of doing a lot of reading. I know that some authors really don't like to read a lot of books like theirs while they're in the writing process, sort of just that anxiety of influence, if you will. But I think as much as you can sort of knowing the other books in the market and knowing what else your readers are, are into, and also for the purposes of supporting your community and supporting fellow writers, I think that's really important too. And that's something that that's the best way to get to know your comps is just to read a lot.
2: Absolutely. So one of the fun things I did to prepare for my talk with Andrea was I crowdsourced some questions for her on my Instagram stories. So I said, interviewing Andrea Dunlop, what do you want to know? And so we got some really good questions. So here's the first one. Some of them were repeats, so I could tell what's on everybody's mind. And this is a really big one. There's a lot of anxiety around this. And writers want to know, what is it like to be on submissions to editors, right? So there's this whole like, you know, getting an agent thing. But what does it feel like when you're on submission to editors, kind of the next step of getting the book deal?
3: It feels like you've just met a guy or gal or non-binary individual that you are really, really into and you are waiting for them to call you. (laughs) It is probably the hardest part of the entire process. It's the most passive part of the process for writers. There's nothing you can do. At that point, you have done all your work, you have prepped with your agent, your agent has sent out his or her pitches. And you're just waiting by the phone and you're waiting for that call that's going to, you know, move your life forward or not happen. And then when it's not happening, it feels like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's really, really hard. I think it's an exciting place to be because you're really on the brink, but it is the most, I think for myself and for every writer I know, this is the most difficult part of the process because all you can do is sit and wait. The thing that I always try and do is start on another project to sort of deal with the emotional ups and downs of the the actual publishing process versus the writing process. I really, like most writers, I think prefer to be in that that writing zone. That's where we're happiest. When you're on submission with a novel in particular, you can't really start another novel necessarily because any day, you know, you could be on submission for a week or you could be on submission for a year. You don't know what your time period is going to be, And so to sort of try and dive into a new project that you may or may not be able to keep up momentum on is pretty hard. So I think it's just a matter of trying to distract yourself. I have to say right now, I think the only hack I can advise on is um, that, you know, this past year or so, I've had a fiction project, a nonfiction project, and a podcast that I've been working on. So I've had these sort of three creative projects that have been important to me. And I have noticed that it is helpful to sort of spread it out a little bit. You can kind of like pivot. That's not necessarily a practical thing to do all the time. But I think as much as you can sort of find something else to distract yourself with that's creative but maybe not the whole next book it is probably the best thing you can do but
2: yeah submission is really hard okay here's our next question what is the best marketing and publicity advice writers normally never get
3: ooh that's a good one i mean <laughs> probably all of it i feel like this is a place where there's just a real gap in terms of preparing writers for what they're going to be dealing with when their book goes on sale Luckily for me, I had a background in publishing and on the marketing side in particular. So I knew what to expect. And I think that has helped me a lot. And Carly, you're really excellent in terms of knowing about social media, in terms of being proactive with marketing efforts, but that's not every agent's wheelhouse. And so I think a lot of authors don't get prepped by anybody on what they're supposed to be doing. And there's sort of a lot of general talk about, oh, you should be proactive. Oh, we want you to be on social media we want you to be promoting your book, but there's not a lot of on the ground advice for what that looks like. And I think a lot of authors feel really surprised by that. They're surprised by how much they're expected to do. They don't feel prepared for that. And there's a reality that you can spend your creative energies, you, know, you only have so much in the bank. So I think a lot of writers A lot of our creative energy goes towards our actual work and then there can be a sort of level of exhaustion of trying to do social media and all these other things. So my best advice is to take that proactive role and just find something that feels really manageable. So maybe that's a monthly newsletter or maybe that's one social media platform that you happen to like. If you find TikTok fun, there's lots of ways to do, you know, book talk. And I'm sort of just starting to get into that. I'm an elder millennial, so it's not exactly, uh, it doesn't feel completely automatic to me, but it is fun. Or Instagram, or it doesn't really matter what the tactic is. I think a lot of authors feel like because they get this blanket advice to use social media, that they need to use all these different platforms. Find one good way to connect with your audience directly and focus your energies on that and then build on that. So, You need to pick a tactic that you have the time for and that you can actually sustain, and then kind of just let the rest of that noise fall away because nobody can do it all. Nobody can do it all, all of the time. And it really takes time. I mean, I think that's the other thing is that people get really focused on the book launch, but it's really about your whole career. And most of the tactics that you have any control over are going to be things that you're going to build for your whole career. So things like building up a mailing list or building up a following on social media.
2: Yeah, a lot of it is that long-term vision, right? Everybody's thinking this book right now, what do I do today on social media? But it's such a long game of like the career, the newsletter, the mailing list, like everything, right? Builds and builds and builds in a a long career.
3: Yeah. And I think it's really helpful sometimes when you have a book that you read that you really like, or it's a book that is getting a lot of attention, that's a breakout book. Sometimes that's a debut. Every once in a while, there'll just be a debut that really gets like, Loaded for Barron is is the one that a publisher really puts all its resources into. But more often that's that author's third, fourth, fifth book. So maybe that's the first book you've read by that author, but check out their ad card. And then you find out, oh, which is that little piece of the front matter that says all their other books and come to find out it's their fifth or sixth book. And that I think is always a little bit calming to think like, okay, this Feels like, from my perspective, it happened overnight for this person, but it definitely did.
2: Okay, next question. Why did you leave working in publishing?
3: Well, I wouldn't say that I've left working in publishing entirely. It's sort of, you know, I don't have an office day job anymore. Frankly, that was not something that I liked. So I was pretty anxious to get away from that. There are some things I really miss about working in an office and sort of working with other people, but I more or less just went freelance around the time that my first book came out. That just was more manageable. And certainly in the meantime, I've gotten married and had kids and, or had a child. And that certainly also complicates the having an office job part of things. Basically, I just sort of think of, of my two sides of my work as sort of dials that I dial up and dial back. Some years I'm doing more consulting and more teaching, and then some years I'm doing more writing. So that's been a mix that's worked really well. And I really like to keep a little bit of a toe in the publishing world, whether that's teaching classes at Hugo House or doing some consulting, it's nice to sort of keep that part of my brain sharp. Having a full-time day job and being a writer at the same time, that's where almost all of us start, right? You certainly write your first novel will you have a full-time day job, almost certainly, but that does become hard. I mean, it really does become hard to sort of keep up with that. So I think a lot of, that's why a lot of people you see end up sort of in more in the freelance space.
2: Well, I love that analogy of like dialing up and dialing down. I think everybody can relate to that. And also talking about long careers, right? Like if you're going to do this job for a long time, there's going to be, we are not even getting into the financials of publishing on this talk, but there's going to be years where it's like, we're, you know, we're up, we're down, we're up, or down, right? And like to have that dial up, dial down factor with subsidiary income is just so important for writers to kind of manage that balance, which.
3: Yeah. And I think it's really good to have a trade, so to speak. I mean, it's really good to have something else you can do for money. I think it's not a bummer to have to do some other kind of work. I mean, I think that's just the reality for almost all writers. There's a very, very small percentage of people that that are only living off that income.
2: Okay, next question. Anything you wish you started doing earlier in your career?
3: You know... I don't think so. <laughs> I, I really think like I, there are certainly things that I have learned to do differently as I've gone along, but I think the value of those lessons was also really important. So I started off with my first book, just like throwing everything possible against the wall. And I've sort of like, I'm very much into experimenting in terms of how to reach readers and how to control my end of it, right? There's always a lot you can't control if you're working in traditional publishing. You know, a lot of it is down to your publisher, but I think there are various like different kinds of events, different kinds of social media strategies that I've tried that have not all of them have have flown, but I think I've learned a lot along the way. And so I don't know that I would really do anything differently or there's anything I kind of wish I would started earlier. I mean, I think you always wish that you were the first person to discover the next social media that was going to be really big. <laughs> if you were like one of the first authors to get really big into Instagram, which I wasn't, or one of the first big you know authors to get into whatever it is, which I wasn't because that's like that takes a prescience that like most of us don't have. and I think that's kind of a luck of the draw thing. Other than being, than, than wishing I was one of the first Instagram people so that I would have hundred thousand followers or whatever. I was really well set up from working in publishing. I think that really helped me a lot. And yeah, I think everything I've learned along the way has been valuable. Absolutely.
2: Okay. I had a lot of questions about your writing process. Everybody wants to know, and you talked a little bit about how you have different projects going on right now, but can you give us just like from the big picture to the day to day, like what does your writing process actually
3: look like? Oh my goodness. I feel like this is such a hard one to answer and it's one that we, all writers get asked a lot. So I would say for fiction, in terms of process with the question of being, as we say, a plotter or a pantser, some writers really do a lot of prep work in terms of making an outline and all kinds of notes before they sit down to write. And then some of us just sit down with some kind of idea and start writing. And I'm definitely the latter. I'm definitely a pantser. One of the great joys of writing for me is just to have some hint of an idea. You know, sometimes I, I really have a, a novel, sort of the whole thing in my head when I sit down to write. That definitely happened with We Came Here to Forget. I think that was because it really came from such a more personal place where there was like some business I wanted to attend to there. And so that that sort of came out in a really different way than my other books. But I think in general, I usually have sort of one compelling character, or even one compelling scene that's sort of giving me that feeling of, of wanting to chase it and write 90,000 incredibly messy words about about that and just follow the various, you know, go down the various rabbit holes that takes me. And that's a really, I love writing a first draft. I think it's so much fun to just be sort of not self-conscious and not thinking about, not even sort of thinking about the reader yet, just sort of sitting and letting it come out. I sort of think of it as, I think it's the Scottish myth. And I know this because of the movie Brave that my daughter's obsessed with, where they chase the will o' the wisps. Like that's kind of like my process for writing novels. I'm like, whoo! I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to follow it. We just sold our first nonfiction project together. That was such a different experience. And that was, it's been so fun to, to do something that so different from novel writing because you know, when you're writing a nonfiction project, you don't sell it based on a manuscript, you sell it based on a book proposal. For those of us who don't know what, what goes into that, so you have an outline, you have chapter summaries, you have an overview, you have a marketing section. So it's basically this business plan for what your book is going to be. And you're really thinking about the structure and how the book is gonna come together and who the reader is necessarily thinking about these things before you really get into writing a lot of the manuscript, you write a few chapters. So that's been really interesting to sort of take that different lens. And also to of course to be working with facts that's different. I'm like, oh you know, so really can't like other than you know, tweaking dialogue here and there and taking the small bits of artistic license, you really can't you don't want to make things up if you have a nonfiction book. In terms of my sort of daily process, that's something that's sort of ever shifting too. I think before I had my daughter, I was and and in some periods after, since I've had her, I, I'm usually a morning writer. I usually really like to have that be the first thing I do. So... If my daughter's still sleeping, or again, before I had her, when I had a day job, I would get up before work, and that's been really key for me. I don't know how people sit down and write at the end of the day. I certainly don't have anything to give it at that time. I know for some people that's it. That's a great time to sort of after their day is done and their family's asleep, they go down and write. I certainly couldn't do that. So yeah, I, I like to have it be the first thing I do. You know, get out of bed. Honestly, I don't do anything before I go get a cup of coffee and I sit down and write. I mean, I like it's gross. I don't brush my teeth. I'm in my pajamas. Like I'm just full feral, like morning person, (laughs) like, don't, don't want anyone to interact with me. And that feels really nice. And, you know, that's what I did throughout the sort of shutdown parts of the pandemic when I was watching my daughter all day. So I didn't really have time to write during the day and I would get up in the morning. And that was a really nice, there's just something that's really nice about having that space to yourself in the morning and sort of before you read the very scary news. And before you have your energy Siphoned off by your beloved toddler, you know. It's like to have that mental space was really as has always been something that I've I've really really loved. It. I am not a natural morning person. My husband is. It's very annoying. He just like wakes up before six and is like that's is like best time of day. He gets out of bed really easily. This is a habit that I've had to force on myself, but it is one that has really served me well. Um. So yes, is that kind of enough of a. Answer for, my, for my Instagram.
2: Process. Instagram will tell us if we covered that. But yes. obviously, yeah, and I, I Instagram. love
3: Instagram. So if you, anybody who wants to reach out to me on Instagram with, publishing questions whether it's about my books or just or your books or whatever I always love to talk to folks so so feel free to reach out
2: yes yes and she's wonderful wonderful long-hand. my dms are open <laughs>
3: yes and she
2: doesn't have a hundred thousand
3: followers but you do have like eight or ten like you've got a good amount so yeah you know, I mean I it's it's getting there and I think it's um it's always good to focus on like I feel like I have good followers. I feel like I have a good community there and it's like great bookish people, readers and bookstagrammers and stuff. So it's also, it's not, it's not all about the numbers. That's another good, actually piece of social media advice is not to get too focused on just those.
2: Yeah, no, I I love that you're just able to curate a community on there. Like that's my favorite thing about it, right? Like they come to you and they stick around for you and it's your community that you build and so much better than gross Twitter. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
3: yeah, no, I don't even go on
0: Twitter anymore.
2: Okay, I got one last question from the Instagrammers for you, which is maybe you can, I don't know, pull out some heartfelt wisdom here, but advice for somebody who thinks they quote unquote failed at Remo.
3: Oh, I love this question. So, okay, so Remo or Rimo or however you pronounce it is the goal is I think 50,000 words in one month, which is a lot of words in one month. <laughs> I think that if you feel you failed at NaNoWriMo, which to, to which I'm assuming that you did not reach that 50,000, that would be the failure. How many words did you end up with? Did you end up with 20,000 or 10,000? That's still a lot in a month. That's still a really good clip. And I think It's the oldest advice in writing, but it is the best that writing is about putting your butt in your chair. And so if that helped you put your butt in your chair and get anything on paper, then that's a start. And it's something you build off of. And I think that it's really important with NaNoWriMo or any other sort of goal setting around writing to keep the spirit of it in mind and not get too attached to the letter of the law there, because The spirit of NaNoWriMo is supposed to be, we are going to sit down and do this thing. They set that lofty word count goal because it will keep people from self-editing. It will keep people from getting self-conscious. And I think that that's a really good spirit to take with you on your first draft. You know, I talked about how I write first drafts, which is like, I just let it be the most glorious mess that it wants to be. I will follow any bonkers rabbit hole in case there's something good there. Like, I mean, I think with my last novel, I cut at least a hundred thousand words ended up on the cutting room floor as I was writing various revisions. So I think like, take the spirit of NaNoWriMo with you as you continue on that draft, which is just like, just get the words on the page. doesn't matter if they're good words, bad words, like that's what revision is for. Like first drafts are supposed to be ugly. So I think like, don't get obsessed with reaching that goal I think goal setting is good, but also reevaluating goals as you go is better because I think like goals only matter insofar as they keep you motivated. If they start to make you feel defeated, then they're working, then you're working at cross purposes with your goals. So yeah, figure out why maybe you didn't, you weren't able to reach that 50,000. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, right? Like that's still, that's a lot of words. Like writing takes this very small space in our lives, realistically, time-wise for most of us, especially if you're working on a first draft and you don't have a contract yet then you're not able to sort of like, I know we I sort of talked about dialing up these day job and writing work. Like there's a lot of writing that all of us, Do on spec, right? We aren't necessarily going to get reimbursed for that time. So you really do have to like cut yourself some slack. We all have lives. We have day jobs and kids and friends and family members that need our help. Obviously this last two years has been an incredibly, whatever it is, almost two years has been an incredibly hard time. So cut yourself some slack and keep the spirit going and find goals that are going to keep you motivated and not make you feel bad.
2: I think that's wonderful advice. So whether you quote unquote, win or quote unquote lose at NaNoWriMo, NanoRimo. Yeah. I think you're a winner in my books because I don't write. I'm decent.
3: Yes. Um, me too. Me too. You're <laughs> a winner in my book just for sitting down and opening the Word document and giving it a try. Yeah. Would you ever do it? I have in the past tried. <laughs> I don't think I've ever tried to get the 50,000 because I just wasn't necessarily like At that point of working on something, you sort of have to be like sitting down to write a first draft on November 1st or kind of like really early in a first draft to want to get that 50,000. If you're working on a revision, then you're not going to like pile up 50,000 words. But I do usually in November try and hop on social media and like chat with people about NaNoWriMo. I love watching people do it. I kind of absorb the energy of, again, the spirit of the thing, right? Which is like people supporting each other and cheering each other on and really just that real focus on getting words on the page. So yeah. And I do set those kind of goals for myself sometimes, especially, you know, in that first draft mode where I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a thousand words a day or 2000 words a day or whatever it is. The word count thing can be a really good goal to just keep your momentum up, which is really important on a first draft. I mean, I think it's just, It's really hard to get 80 or 90,000 words down. It's just something that a lot of people can't do. So absolutely.
2: That's all the questions that we had from Instagrammers. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, sharing all of your wisdom. I'm sure people will be quote tweeting lots of inspirational quotes from your chat. So thank you so much for being here.
3: Yeah, it was such a pleasure.
2: My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off.
0: Today's guest is the author of six previous novels in the Peter Ash series, most recently The Breaker. His debut, The Drifter, won both the ITW Thriller Award and the Barry Award for Best First Novel and was a finalist for the Edgar, Anthony, and Hammett Awards. A husband and father, he lives in Milwaukee. It's my pleasure to welcome Nick Petrie. Nick, welcome to the show.
4: Well, thanks so much for having me, Bianca. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now, so it's it's quite a a joy to be on it. Thank you.
0: Right. So, you know, from listening to the podcast that we dive right in, and there are some elements of craft that I really want to pick your brain about today. But before we get into that, just for our listeners, the book we're talking about today is The Runaway. The blurb for the book is, when Peter Ash rescues a stranded woman, he finds she's in far deeper trouble than he could ever imagine working nights at a gas station in an isolated montana town helene is desperate to escape both her low-paying job and her predatory boss so when a kind stranger stops to fill up his tank helene barely hesitates before asking for a ride willing to go anywhere to start her life over But she may have fled one danger only to run straight into another. Dun, dun, dun. So lots of page turning action here. I actually got to interview Mark Graney earlier this week about his latest book. So for me, it's been a real treat reading two male authors, all this action and tension and intrigue and suspense back to back. So that's been lovely. So Nick, something that I want to specifically focus on today is beginnings because on the podcast we try and give writers rules, more guidelines to say these are the kind of things that ensure a good beginning and we say try and do this, try and avoid that. Now one of the things we suggest they do is have inner and outer conflict So you want to see a character struggling with something internally. We want to see them struggling with something externally. We want to show them in a moment of crisis and sort of taking it from there. And something we tell them to avoid is backstory. Now, can you tell us about these three opening chapters just to give our readers a bit of context on them?
4: Well, sure. We meet Helene at her job working nights at a remote gas station slash grocery store at the far west edge of the Great Plains. And she's all alone. This is a a tiny little town. She's down to two people, and one of whom is her predatory boss, who's also her landlord, who's also a county sheriff's deputy. So he has far more power over her than anybody should. And we get a sense of where she is in her life, and we get a sense of the threat that he poses to her. And then this stranger shows up to fill his gas tank and keep heading on his way. And he's kind to her, and that doesn't happen a lot in her life. And so she decides very quickly has to decide very quickly that she is going to get out of this position she's got no family she's got nobody else to help her that she's got to take advantage of this moment and so she walks out and she asks this stranger if he'll give her a ride and you know as it turns out, he's not alone. He has a friend in the car. And so that adds somewhat to the tension. But, you know, one of the things about writing this character is we're very deep inside her inner life. And so she has not so much inner conflict, I would say, as multiple kinds of outer conflict. And she has a real strong need. And she's trying hard to figure out how to get out of there. It's funny, one of the things that I love about what you do, Bianca, is that you talk about the technical details of how writing gets done. And For me, I am operating entirely by feel. I'm a pantser. I just begin, I'm looking for a voice. You know, really, that is how I begin and how this book began was Helene kind of started talking to me. And I just tried to follow where she wanted to go or or where she had to go. So I'm not sure that's a a very writerly answer for you. But I do think that that's sort of how my process works.
0: Very much is a writerly answer. You know, for most of us, some character taps us on the shoulder. It's like, talking to a stranger at a bar and they're like sit down I'm gonna tell you all of my stuff and you're gonna listen so that's how it happens for me as well but I disagree with you in terms of Helene's inner conflict because she has quite a lot of inner conflict you know when he first arrives she's got a lot of interiority like you say it's written in the third person yet it's super super close to her you know we're very very close to her and there's things that she wants to say but she doesn't say there's things she kind of blurts out and then wishes she didn't she's so used to men objectifying her that she's kind of testing the stranger you know he's not staring at her boobs like most men do when they come into the gas station etc so you know there's a lot happening inside of her and when she decides to go with him there is this conflict she's like should I do it should I not do it this is my opportunity to make a run for it so we definitely see the inner push and pull within her and we see all this external conflict in her life which definitely Definitely makes her super compelling. The thing that really interested me is you know I say to our listeners that the beginnings of stories is like circling a building. you're just trying to find your way in. Sometimes it's the front door, sometimes it's the back door, sometimes it's a fire escape. There's always so many different ways to begin a story and you begin in the action. She is in this gas station. She's actually sleeping and the stranger wakes her up and we get a sense of how exhausted she is, the long hours she works, etc. And he isn't like other men. He doesn't treat her the same way. He's not disrespectful of her. He hasn't objectified her and this kind of intrigues her. And then in chapter two, we go back and we have her backstory with this deputy, with her mother passing away with her working these long hours and this guy is super creepy and he's what he's waiting for her 19th birthday. Why?
4: Well, he is playing a game with her or he thinks he's playing a game for her. It's deadly serious for him. It's like foreplay. And he just, he is letting her know and enjoying the tension it creates in her that, you know, he, his control over her is growing and growing and that she should either give in to him or he will take what he wants regardless. And he is, Essentially given her the deadline of her 19th birthday, which is rapidly approaching. But I don't know, the the backstory question is really interesting because I'm really interested in backstory. I'm really interested in why people become the way they are. And, And I know it's sort of a commonplace trope to sort of say who you were in your childhood is who you are dictates who you become as an adult. Although I, I, I think there's some truth to that. And I also think what makes it interesting is what are the ways that you resist your backstory? What are the ways that you push against it to try to become, you know, your own person to define yourself as opposed to having your history define you? And so those are all the things that I'm kind of interested in talking about in terms of character.
0: It also, no, it explains her motivation so well. So the only reason I ask about it is because you did it so well. So I normally say to my students and listeners, no backstory within the first three chapters. Ground us in the here and now and let's go. And you did that in the first chapter. Chapter two, you give us that backstory so that we understand why Helene would grab some things out of the gas station, grab some money out of the till and go with two strange men because she's so desperate to get out of there. So it completely explains her motivation. My question is, When you decided to structure it this way, is there a reason why you didn't begin, let's say, two days earlier or a day earlier? and then we moved on to the stranger. For me, it's always just interesting the the decisions we make in how we are going to present the order of events to our listeners because there's no right way, there's no wrong way, there's just the way we chose and so that's what I'm trying to do is understand your rationale in terms of beginning where you did, then going back to backstory and then bringing us back to the present moment again as opposed to a linear timeline with her like the day before seeing this creepy guy, knowing her 19th birthday, is approaching and then seeing the scene in the gas station unfolding?
4: You know, I I have no idea how to answer that question. I am not, I wish I could have sort of planned out how that chapter evolved and I rewrote it half a dozen times probably. I guess I'm looking for a certain sort of narrative shape and I do like to begin in the middle, as Elmore Leonard said, and as you advise your students. I think that's a, a good idea to begin where something is happening. But you also kind of know what informs what's happening. So you know, I I place her in that gas station, and you know, you see her in conflict with her circumstances and somewhat with herself. No, I, I suppose you're right that it's because she has all of these impulses within her. Because what person in their right mind would climb into a what what woman certainly would climb into a car with two strange men. And so I had to give her a good reason, and you you know, you have I had to have sort of that push and pull at the same time, but. You know, I'm always interested when writers talk about their choices as if they had other choices. And for me, I am just following what feels to me like the inevitability of how things should be in my head. The last podcast of yours I listened to, I can't, this is a cardinal sin for an author, but I can't remember your guest's name. But she she talked about having a W structure, and i I love that idea, but I, I could never begin something thinking about what sort of structure it would need. I really just sort of follow it down to see what happens. and i've I've, I've read thousands and thousands of books of all, of all sorts. And those are the things that I think you after a while you begin to internalize those structures and those systems, and you just think in terms of your story, at least that's what I do instead of trying to impose something externally on it, I just try to follow what that and to feel what this story wants to be and it's a it is a messy process it, it is not efficient in any way I, I I wish in fact that I could be an outliner I wish I could be like you know Mark Graney who is a friend of mine and who is a really really productive author i you know I wish I could generate as much work as he does but I am you know for me it is just a it's I'm sort of feeling my way forward it's I wrote a piece in Crime Reads about how, for me, writing is like exploring a cave in the, in the dark without a headlamp. I'm just really kind of feeling my way through, trying to figure out what the best way to do this is. And for me, it's not a rational process, per se. It's really intuitive.
0: Yeah. And you've intuitively come at it the best possible way because, you know, I was looking at these three chapters, trying to move them around as puzzle pieces. And it's amazing how we begin the chapter. We see Helene and she's kind of snarky. You know, she's like, I don't give a shit about what's in the store. Take the shit. You don't have to pay for it. You know, she's kind of got attitude and we're not a 100% on board with her. And we see her kind of looking at this guy trying to make a decision, and we would automatically be like, hell no, don't go there. And then in one chapter, you give us, I think it's like, and it's a short chapter for our listeners, it's like three pages or so of her backstory, and we are like immediately, 100% invested in her based on that backstory. We are rooting for her so that when she makes this decision to go with the men, we realize that it's like, it's major catch 22, because she's screwed if she stays, And she's definitely screwed if she stays, but if she goes with this man, there's a slight chance that she isn't screwed. So we are kind of rooting for her. So it was, you know, a wonderful decision that you made instinctively. For emerging writers, they're still trying to find their way into that instinctual kind of process where they just know something feels right, which is why we try and pick it apart and go, why did you do this? Maybe there was a rational reason for it.
4: Well, no, all all that makes sense to me. And I, and certainly when, when I was starting out, I kind of worked the same way to some extent. I have a master's in fine arts and fiction. I've been through a million workshops. I've, you know, run a million workshops. It's a different working on short stories is also kind of a fundamentally different process. But I do think that, that the goal is to internalize your story process and I've had the privilege of interviewing lots of authors at my local bookstore and and for other events. And Greg Hurwitz, who's another thriller writer, one of his lines, which I love, he says people always ask him what the right book to read is so that they'll learn how to write fiction. And he said, well, there's no one right book. There's about 2,000 that you should read. And I and I think that's absolutely true because I mean reading is is really the best way to learn to write. You can you, you certainly want to examine your prose. You want to you want to write something and then and then take it apart and see what works and what doesn't. But you you really need to read and you need to you know read above yourself, right? If what you love is a is a good potboiler thriller, you, you should try reading stuff that is a level or two above that, so that you can hopefully you know learn from people who are better than you. And so I think that's kind of where that instinct gets developed for writers.
0: Yeah, 100%, 100%. and every writer's process is different. The author you were talking about is Fiona Davis. She was talking about that W structure. She writes historical fiction. I'm like you. I'm a complete pantser, and, you know, every book is different. It's a puzzle, and you as the author have got to figure out how the damn hell to put the thing together, and it's going to be different to the last puzzle you put together, and that's part of the joy and part of the fun of writing it. Now, let's talk again about the chapters that happen after that. You've got so much action and I understand that this is an action thriller, but the story just moves forward so beautifully and so seamlessly. After we see Helene with these guys, we've got an instance where Peter comes across this woman who's parked on the side of the road. She's heavily pregnant and she's clearly running away from something. And being the kind of guy he is, he steps in to help her and you keep the chapters really short and you always finish with something that keeps people reading pages. Again, is this something that you've adopted as your technique or again, do you just instinctively write a chapter and you end it at a place where you instinctively feel like that's a good end or do you have like a formula for yourself?
4: Well, I often write forward and there are natural breaks in where, you know, there's a shift or where I want to jump forward in time a little bit. And and I'll often write 5,000 words or more without really breaking up into chapters. And then I will go back and sort of say, well, my, my chapters, again, I'm shooting for somewhere between 1,200 words and 1,600 words. Because I think that's a good, as a reader, I think that's a good sort of consumable chunk that's not exhausting. And I've, I've noticed that when I'm reading something, if it's 11 o'clock at night and, and I should have turned the light out at 1030, but the next chapter is just a couple pages and it ends at, at a little bit of a tension point, that I will often keep turning the pages. So I, I am a little bit deliberate about that, but I think of that as a different process than that discovery process. So for me, there's the bashing out that draft, And then there are the more, which which for me is utterly instinctual. And then there are those points where you know I kind of have to pull back and sort of say, okay, what have I done, and what shape has it taken, and what should I do with that? And so chapters and ends of chapters are very much something I, I'll I'll test it out. I'll I'll make a break. I'll write chapter and then I'll go forward and and I'll and I'll shift them around, or I'll I'll have a a chapter section that's twenty five hundred words, and then the next one that's. 800 words and I'll think, okay, how can I balance these out a little bit? And I think part of it is when you are writing thrillers, right? That's, that's my publisher. That's what my publisher calls these. The focus is on having, is, is on tension on every page and on having fun, right? It should be exciting. Even if it's something that's not very pleasant that's happening, it should be exciting, right? I'm going for a physical reaction. And I can tell when I'm writing if my heartbeat is elevated. If I'm writing a scene that is engaging me emotionally, it also engages you physically. And that's why when you're at the very end of a, of a really good, exciting book, it's hard to go to sleep afterward, right? So that's, that's that effect that I'm, that I'm going for. And the, the line or the moment at the end of a chapter is something I do spend some effort on. Sometimes it just happens, but sometimes I have to kind of go, yeah, I need to play with that a little bit. I need to add something to that a little bit. But yeah, it's it's a it's a funny process because there is the the instinctual piece, and then there's the place where the writer shows up. I'm not quite sure who the other person is, <laughs> but then the writer shows up and starts to sort of say, "Okay, now." you know, what do you have? And I'm often switching back and forth, which can be problematic. When I begin a work day, I'll, I'll go with the previous few days work and I'll kind of go through to fall into that voice and to, to sort of clean things up. Because when it does start to come, I sometimes need to sort of pull out some of the emotional bits a little bit, or I need to clarify some of the action pieces a little bit. So I spend the sort of the first part of my morning cleaning up and enhancing and developing what I've done the last few days, which is not so much instinctual, that's really analytical. And then I'll just try to push the book forward by not thinking too much. So it's a it's an interesting back and forth and I think you have to you have to get good at using both those sets of muscles
0: yeah very much so and it sounds like our process is exactly the same i also begin by going over the last few days work cleaning that up and then i go forward and you know for our listeners it's a great way to immerse yourself back in this world in the voice that you've chosen whether it's a narrative voice or point of view etc and i always feel more comfortable moving forward once i'm happy with what i've just finished so the more polished my previous chapter is the more confident i feel moving forward so that's a technique i definitely recommend as well Last question before I have to let you go Nick. Who is your reader? Like when you think of your demographic. I mean, you obviously do a ton of events at bookstores, etc. Can you tell us who your average reader is or is it that your your demographics quite wide?
4: Well, my demographic is quite wide. It's a, that's one of the things that my publisher finds interesting is is for for the typical thriller demographic is often a uh, an older than middle-aged white guy. And my demographic is actually more female than male. And I think that's the emphasis on character is part of what has brought that second audience. Uh, and it, But it's also spread fairly evenly from the youngest demographic, the youngest adult demographic, that is, through through the oldest. And I'm not, I'm not quite sure entirely why that is. But in terms of who I think of as my reader, I'm essentially writing for my wife. And the reason I lean into character is because that's what she's interested in. And if I want her to read my draft, It has to be something that she wants to read. And I think when I get stuck, sometimes writing the beginning back to the the bit about how to start something, sometimes I have trouble finding that beginning. This book, I wrote three different beginnings to three different books. And I finally came back to that first one because I was writing to all the readers, right? And trying to write something that would appeal to all of the readers. And really, you just, th- that's not a successful strategy because it essentially empties the work of any personality. It empties the work of any heart or soul. And so it, it really helps me to kind of remember that I am really just writing for one person. And I'm trying to find a way to convey the story that I want to tell to somebody who has a certain aesthetic, which is not that different from my own. But it's a strange, it's easy, especially as a series grows. So this is the seventh book in this series, and the, the readership is growing quite a bit. And it's easy to get sort of lost in the idea of the audience. So again, I'm really writing for one person.
0: And that very much comes through. You write woman really well. You wrote Helene incredibly, incredibly well. And that is, you know, why you have a big female audience, because they connect with that. So continue having your wife as your first reader. She's an excellent person to write for. So Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. I mean, I know I really broke down those opening chapters, but there was so much that we could have discussed in the book. So for our listeners, we're putting the book, The Runaway, on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If If you buy it through there, you're supporting an independent bookstore, which is always wonderful. You're supporting an author, which is always wonderful. And you are supporting the podcast, which we greatly appreciate. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.